First Strike, District number 45, brought to you by FaceToFaceGames.com, the number one place to get your Magic of the Gathering singles. Also, be sure to check out mtgnationals.ca. It's coming very soon in less than three weeks, October 13th to October 15th. Um, the cap is 700 people, so get in. Uh, we might, I don't know, we don't know. The last time there was a World uh, Cup qualifier, there were 500, 400, 500 people. So maybe we get close to the cap or even like cap it. So it's a possibility. But uh, here we are with some, uh, I mean, it's not the original squad, but it's one of the originals. One of Doug the OGs. OGs. Doug Potter's in the house. What's up, everyone? How you doing? I'm happy to be back. I've been playing a lot of Magic lately. Something that I can't have said for the past like four months. I haven't been able to say, but uh, here we are, ready to talk about it. Ready to talk about pirates and dinos and bears. Oh my, let's go! And we got Vince Agostino, who's become the first strike, the ultimate first strike producer slash director slash editor. How's it going? It's going. I just want to add, my first episode was like episode seven. So we're on episode 45. I feel like I'm close enough to an OG as you can get without being one. So I'm going to own that title anyway. Early adopter. Early sure, adopter. Sure, we'll say that. The first newbie. It's going good. Okay. Um, you had a good weekend? Yeah, the pre-releases were super fun. I did horribly in them. Um, I don't know why, but that's life. Got a lot to talk about, though. So I, it was fun. It was good. All right, and we also got a special guest with us uh, to discuss some pretty big news. Jonathan Good in the house, level three judge, regional coordinator, and I, I guess uh, I have to add it. It's a stupid joke that's in my head. I just gotta say it. Chris Lands is Al's best friend. How's it going, John? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. Thanks for bringing me on. This is awesome. <laughs> also, also a big part of uh, helping us organize GP Toronto, and it was a huge success once again. So, so thanks a lot. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be here. Long time listener, first time caller. Also, for, uh, also actually a first strike uh, producer. Yeah, for the first strike nation. Yeah, and uh, let's just jump right into it. We got you here because there's some big news, uh, a lot of controversial news, different, lots of different opinions. We knew this. We knew that uh, when it was announced that this was going to be great for the show to have uh, two completely different sides uh, ballot out and. Twitter, in the Facebook groups, and everything else, and it call comes from Toby Elliott's posts on uh, blogs.magicjudges.org. Uh, the main one, we're, we might go through all of it, but the main one that people are talking about, and he littered this entire article with like pirate-type language, <laughs> um, reminding your opponent about optional choices. So I'm just going to quickly read through this. Uh, recently, there's been some question about what we expect players to do when they play a spell or ability, most commonly Path Exile, but Ghost Porter comes up too. Their opponent doesn't do an optional part of the instruction. Since it's optional, that's theoretically a legal result, even if they didn't realize that they had that, the option. Given the preponderance of techless, textless, and foreign cards and communication rules that don't require you to explain everything a card does, because that way lies madness, there was incentive for scurvy dogs to not bring up those parts of a card. Revised communication rules have added text preempt us. Now, if a spell or ability you play gives an opponent a choice, you must get confirmation from them that they aren't doing the optional thing. You still don't have to remind them while they decide if they want to respond, but once it resolves, the time comes, no making assumptions or you'll be hung from the yardarm for communication policy 
violation. Did you, was this something that was discussed for a while now, John? So, uh, yes, uh, it's something that, uh, you know, high-level judges have been discussing what we want to do with here. It speaks to the, you know, that fundamental push and pull between do we want to make Magic an uh, easy-to-approach game that's, um, you know, really easy for casual people to get into? Do we want the game to function in a way that casuals expect it to? Or do we want the game to function in a way that competitive players expect it to? Um, it's been going on for actually a couple of years. I'm personally really happy to see this rules change because even though I was wrong, I ruled this way two years ago at a PPTQ top eight where a guy, he pats his opponent's uh, uh, dude and his opponent doesn't search anything and they just sit there for like, you know, a hundred whole milliseconds of awkwardness and then they pass the turn and I'm like, oh, hold on here. My, I don't know, sometimes you like... Ooh. Yeah, right. So at the time, I, there was a long discussion afterwards. We got into the nitty gritty of like, it says May, it's a legal resolution. Like, what do you do? My argument at the time is that the opponent didn't give him a no. The opponent just gave him a null, right? So it's not that he chose no. It's that no choice was made at all, um, which isn't the way that this ended up breaking out. And, and that's just a thing that I did two years ago in a, you know, a 30-player event in Moncton, New Brunswick. But um so this is something that's been, yeah, it's, it's a discussion that's been going on for a while. And um, uh, we got enough critical mass of people who thought that it should be changed. And I really like what's going on here. So, so you're, you're for the change. I am. I am. There's um, especially the way they handle it. There's a lot to unpack here and I won't like I won't go into the nitty gritty, but I can tell you one of the versions of this that they could have done that would have been bad. Um, you'll notice in a little bracket there, he says, quote, because that way lies madness. I'll, I'll describe the madness for a little bit. So um, we have different categories of information in competitive magic. We have free information derived, yada, yada, yada. And right now, the text of a card is derived information. That's why if somebody asks you, you know, hey, what does V-Click do? You don't have to answer them. You tell them, go get a judge. And a judge can give you Oracle text, right? And if they changed it so that you're like, hey, what does your path do? And right now you can just say, figure it out for yourself or, you know what I mean? Like, no habla inglés, whatever. Um, like, if they chose to make card text free information, here's how that goes wrong. You attack and I... Uh, flash in, oh, I can't think of an example. What's, there, what's like a flash creature with dust touch? Anything? Is there a flash creature with death touch? Like a random snake? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there? Okay, yeah. Imagine, imagine if you will, a creature with flash and death touch and you flash it in and your opponent's like, oh, hey, what does that card do? And you're like, oh, it's a snake with flash, which right now is totally legal, right? And then you block and they're like, cool, your snake's dead. And you say, oh, it has death touch these traits. So right now, that's fine. If they change card text to be free information, then your opponent's like, oh, he didn't tell me everything about that card, and there's warnings and backups, and it's real awkward, right? Real, real awkward. And you can game that. You can say, uh, oh, I'm going to flash in my Snapcaster Mage because i got to block some lethal attack, and your opponent is like, what does that do? And you say, uh, it's a 2-1 with flash. You make your block, and then, and then they throw their hand up and go, judge, he didn't tell me that it's a human wizard. He didn't read to me the text about how it is flashback, right? Like, he didn't tell me it's converted mana cost. Like, if it's free information, then technically, if you get a judge who's just, you know, not really maybe using some common sense, they might be like, yeah, communication policy violation. Let's back that on up. Like, so anyway, they didn't do that. 
that would have been a really bad version of this rule change. Um, instead, what they did, and I'll, I'll go to the docs here. It's in the new version of the MTR. And this is like the technical speak. I'll, tr I'll try to, like, we can ask questions. I'll try to unpack it in the real world speak. But Toby did a great job of that. Uh, it says, during the resolution of one of their spells or abilities, a player may not assume their opponent has taken a shortcut. They must seek confirmation that a choice with no visible impact was taken. So, like, if your opponent is doing, if, if you're, like, path your guy, and your opponent just sits there and stares at you, for a moment, you know, 100 milliseconds of total awkwardness, <laughs> you now have a responsibility to confirm that they're doing nothing. So, and that's, and, and that's because you have a responsibility to confirm that their shortcut of no action is, the, is representative of a choice that they're making and not, and you can't just assume that they're doing that. All right. So that's, that's me explaining the policy. Right. Um, yeah. So I let's... I'm excited to throw it to the guys. Uh, yeah. for, for 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 some strong opinions, but like detailed opinions. Not. Uh, it reminds me of when like the reaction people have for for this type of policy change is like, oh, my opponent should know my cards or or read the cards or whatever, and that's it. Without because there's a lot of like advantages that that are not obvious that people don't think about, like that they don't even consider that are like good for certain uh, parts of the game, and just like when we discussed. Uh, the tiebreakers thing, people, you know, were upset, like, just play better, just win your early games. But I think, you know, for me, there are positives in wanting people more magic, matches of magic to be played if it doesn't extend the length of the tournament. So I, I really hope Vince and Doug have opinions about this, oh, yeah. uh, or just my, my opponents should just know what my guards do. So I will start with Doug. Let's start with Doug. What's your opinion? Is this a great change of mind? It's a great change. I just want to, before we jump into the change, mention, it's funny, you mentioned the Death Touch, Death Touch Snake Flash thing. Friend of uh, this podcast and other podcasts, Jeremy Schofield, lent me a foreign deck once with Firica, God of Affliction. And I didn't know my cards actually had Death Touch, so my opponent said, does the snake do anything else? I said, no, it's just a 1-1 snake. And I blocked. <laughs> and then the guy next to us was like, yo, that dies, it's Death Touch. And when the judge came, I was like, judge, can it just not be Death Touch? I literally didn't know it was Death Touch. The card is foreign. Like, I swear to God, I'm not scumming him. And I, I could have got a game loss for that, but then they were like, okay, we're just going to back up. I'm like, please, like, I have no idea it had Death Touch. So there's your, like, there's your Flash Snake thing. That would have been, like, the most <laughs> complex and next-level angle shoot I've ever heard in oh, Magic no. Rules history if it was bad for that. It's a good I thing I know you, Doug. I love the change. I think the change is great. I'm a huge proponent of making changes in Magic to try and have people not be scumbags. I think a lot of people just do these things that are scummy to try and get an advantage and one of them is misleading an opponent whether that be through what you say or what you don't say um they've been a, doing a really good job I, I strongly remember at pro tour barcelona the, the the jackie lee disqualification where it was like noticing there was a life total discrepancy and not saying anything it's like wait well why do i have to say something that's not fair it's up to them to keep track of their own, own i noticed it that's not on me change in the direction of um life total discrepancy being fixed or board state discrepancies being fixed communication discrepancies being fixed is a strong change sometimes there's a no by not acting like uh i got path to exiled one time at pro tour uh atlanta and i was playing scape shift and he didn't know my hand had four mountains and two forests in it 
So my hand was literally almost every other land in my deck, and I didn't want to get a land off path because then I couldn't kill him with scape shift. So I just pretended I didn't remember the land so that he didn't know the contents of my hand. It was actually strategic to not say anything. But this just, outside of those very small scenarios, this just cleans up, I think, so much of the interaction. And one of my friends, uh, supporter of the show, First Strike Nation member, uh, Chantel, was saying that she's been hearing people say this could lead to a lot of angle shooting, where you purposely, when your opponent casts a path on you, you purposely wait to see if they tell you, and if they don't, you stick them with that warning. My opinion is that is good for magic. If people wait for their opponent, and if their opponent doesn't say anything, they stick him with the warning. Because I think over time, it's just going to lead to players learning that you can't not remind people about these optional things by virtue of getting warnings and game losses. And eventually the game will clear up over time. That's what I think. I think go ahead, like wait to see if they say anything. Educate people by them getting losses that they shouldn't. That's how I got educated on how to write a deck list out, something I used to get a lot of game losses for, was by just doing it enough times to get a bunch of game losses and realize I need to change my habits when it comes to writing out my sealed deck and doing a double check. So I'm a huge proponent of it. I think it is an awesome change. I cannot wait for my opponents to get warnings from it. I know that might sound sadistic, but um, I just want a clear game. I'm the guy who. When you finish your mulligan, I quickly said you scry, and my opponents at the pre release are like, oh, I know I scry. I'm like, I know, I just want you to make sure that you scry. Like, I, I'm not trying to say you're dumb, I'm just, it's important to me that the game is played properly. So, that's my opinion on, uh, on the change. It's good change, and uh, that's kind of where I'm going to start. That is uh, a very interesting take, especially the, the last part with the Chantel part about uh, hoping people <laughs> wait. That that's very good. Uh, Vince, I'm just going to let you jump right in here. Sure. Is it a, a first good or good or bad? Well, it's it's interesting the order in which everyone talked because I had two issues with it, and one of them was very well handled by John, and then Doug kind of touched on the other issue that I had. So my opinion has changed slightly, but I'm still going to give it the way I intended. I think I, I don't mind the change, but I do have two concerns. The first one was that this is precedent for kind of a slippery slope in terms of what they're willing to do what Watsi's willing to do in terms of making sure the game is played correctly. Um, and John kind of answered that pretty well by saying, you know, when he described the fact that they're not going to go to the point of saying card card text is free information. Because, again, you just end up with this, like, horrible nightmare scenario where basically everyone is has access to all this information that it just becomes, like, a rules, a huge rules, like, issue that you don't really want to have to deal with. Um, obviously, that leads to a lot of weird complications. I think the other big concern that I had, though, was the one that Doug brought up, where you just, you've just changed who's doing the angle shooting, right? It's no longer the people who are casting the spells, it's the people who are having the spells cast on them that are doing the angle shooting. And I think Doug's answer is legit. I think that's a, a good point, is that even though it's still angle shooting, it's kind of like angle shooting for the right cause in a way like the end result of your angle shoot is that people start playing more appropriately which is great um that being said angle shooting sucks um and i maybe i'm being too idealistic but i wish there was a way to fix this rule so that no one could angle shoot um and i kind of feel like before you weren't angle shooting so much as leveraging the fact that someone didn't know 
there are exceptions. I'll say if someone is playing like a foreign or a, a full art card that has information on it, that's and then they intentionally try to be misleading about it with either how fast they cast it or the things they say while they cast it. Um, yeah, that sucks. But if I'm casting Path to Exile and you've been playing Modern for five years and you forget, that's how I gain points in a lot of matchups. And I'm not, I don't feel like an asshole for saying that. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like, that's the nature of the game. Like, the, the better players are better at remembering things like that. Like, even things like life gain triggers off of, like, things like Soul Warden back in the day. Like, that was a way you gain points on people. So, um, I'm okay with the change. I just, I'm worried about the amount of people now that are going to do what Doug said. And I'm kind of skeptical of how long it will take for that kind of shift in the community to start being aware of what they're, of announcing all of the effects on their cards. Because I can imagine some scenarios where, like, someone loses in a top 8 of a PPTQ or an, an RPTQ because they cast Path and their opponent waited, and then they were like, okay, go, and their opponent judge called them and they lost. I don't know, like, uh, if it, it's warning level, right? It's not immediate game loss as far as... Yeah, yeah they're going to get warnings if they keep doing it. So, okay, okay. like, it, but my, my just quick counter to that, and this... This is a bit tangential, so it's a different policy. I don't know if it applies here, but I remember firmly back in my PP or my PTQ grinding days between like the first lucky pro tour I got to and then like seven years later when I was actually reasonable enough to maybe qualify, there was this big span where I thought I was good and I wasn't. And uh, I was notorious in Alberta with Gavin Duggan, who's a well-respected uh, judge who became an RA. I was notorious for almost once every tournament calling him over as I had my opening hand and I realized I hadn't mulliganed. And, or sorry, I hadn't sideboarded. And back then, the rule was a game loss. It was just simple. You just got a game loss, you'd present an illegal deck, it was over. But I kept calling it on myself tournament after tournament because I just, I couldn't possibly cheat my opponent. I just, I wasn't going to do that. And then Gavin, what he started doing was instead of giving me a game loss, because I called it on myself, he started allowing me to sideboard and mulligan, which made players furious because it was a deviation. But ultimately his big thing, and the, the thing he said was, I want to make the rule in a way that players won't be incentivized to cheat because of the way that the rule is. I think with our rule that we have now, just to bring it back, is by switching it to the other side, where now it's your responsibility to inform your opponent, you are taking away this prevailing opportunity to cheat, where you pretend you forgot, like my, my Fyreek example, oh, I didn't remember it was Death Touch. And then, you know, you can just cheat by not saying it. Your opponent may never know. They might not know until after the tournament's over when they went home and they're at dinner telling the story to their friends. And they're like, wait, what do you mean? You blocked with three snakes. You killed these three guys. And then you're really upset and bitter. It, it switches the onus to the other side which gets players in a mentality to hopefully, like in the mulligan scenario, call it on themselves instead of, oh, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm not going to play the card and hope I don't get found out. So I think it's huge that we're angle shooting on the other side of the table now because it's not cheating to choose to not get a forest off path. But if your opponent said to you, hey, do I get a land off that? And you said no to them, it is cheating, right? So that's always been cheating, right? Like if if I, if you cast path to exile, right? Like pre rules change. If you cast path and your opponent's like, "Do I get to search for a basic land?" You're like, "Absolutely not. You don't get to do that." That can't. That's not allowed, right? right. Sure, but no. do you not believe that players like fast forward their opponents? Do not oh, think that players really try. To, 
Right, and that is the scum behavior I refer to. Is player scenario to middle of resolution. I've seen this happen where like, okay, this is all going to happen, but I'm going to path your creature right before damage, so I'm only going to take three, okay, and then these two will trade, and so that'll be good, right? I've seen people say that, and they're saying it because then their yeah, opponent, if they look at it all, agree, right, it's no good. And the old rules, I'm not going to say incentivized it, but it's yeah. certainly onboarded this kind of behavior, whereas the new rules change, you can't do that. You, you have to say in that spiel, and then you'll be able to get to land or not while we're doing this, and now it's become an acceptable shortcut. I don't know. I, that's what I think. That's, I don't know what yeah. John That's fair. The, bi biggest, the biggest difference there, in the scenario that you described pre-rules change, like, technically it was legal for them to not get a land, so you successfully Jedi mind trick them into, like, doing this right now what happens is if you get like let's say you catch it soon enough it's post combat and your opponent's like whoa 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 hang on a second here like you path my guy I should get a land my interpretation and i'll add the caveat like this stuff is just dropped today we're still kind of investigating the full texture of this stuff but as i understand it i believe the correct ruling is to say okay you had a responsibility to remind your opponent about that you're getting a warning and we back up to the point where they had to make that choice so you can't push them through combat like that anymore yeah, I, I definitely like that. I think that's a good thing to have for sure. Um, I am curious, though, maybe both of your opinions, or ev everyone's opinion on this. I don't know if anyone remembers the scenario. It was like a story, I think it was Pat Chapin, who cast Profane Command on... So he, he needed to kill his opponent, and basically the only way he could do it was Profane Commanding for X, where his opponent lost X life, and he, got a, he gave a bunch of creatures fear. The problem was one of his creatures was Chameleon Colossus, which has protection from black. So the way he worded the argument, or the way he worded the, the phrasing was, Profane command you for, for, I think it was five, you lose five life, all of my legal targets gain fear, attack you. And he attacked with all of his creatures, including his uh, Chameleon Colossus. And his opponent was like, oh, I guess I'm dead and scooped. Is that okay? So uh, the difference between like this policy and what you're talking about is uh, specifically that this is for instances where an opponent has to make a choice. Right. Um, as the choice is part of the resolution of an ability and it's like so it, it's to bring cards like you know path and ghost order more in line with what people expect from cards like source of plowshares right like they're not they're the way they kind of work most of the time is not that different but the specific text because it, like um, path is also an artifact of like an earlier design era where they just threw the word may everywhere but so with the profane command thing because his opponent isn't really making a choice as a result of like a, a spell or ability resolving like that's still fine it's still like you know it's jedi mind tricks but it's still like that's not covered by this new rule right right i was just more curious yes. in terms of like a morality perspective where uh oh. <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah and i mean like that's one of the things that we're going to have to learn cuz what we did here is we we moved the line a little bit so people have got to learn where close to but not over the line is and this is the thing that i'm most interested in the kind of calls we're going to get is that um i guess i don't know for a nice guy this might be the closest to a hot take but this sends missed signals when you a b it with the miss trigger policy because miss triggers say you're not responsible for what your opponent does they're allowed to miss their triggers but in this policy we say oh but you have to remind them if they're making a choice and I'm not sure a lot of players are going to really wrap their head around the distinction at first. Um, and that's always kind of been the case where we, we tell players on the one hand, like, you're responsible for making sure the game is legal. Oh, but they're allowed to forget. They're, they're allowed to forget triggers that are good for them. 
you know, and it's like, I don't think we, we could do a better job of sort of educating people of what that really looks like. Um, like people, players are notoriously bad for understanding like what a trigger is and like how, you know, if what you're talking about is a trigger. Um, and so, and I bring that up with the idea of like, if we're going to try to navigate from a moral center, I, I'd be interested to hear uh, so Doug was saying a lot of great stuff about how the change is great, and he reminds people about their scries, and he would want to remind people about their path. I'm interested to know if Doug reminds people when they miss triggers. Um, I think it depends. I think it depends on the situation. If if I'm playing at a pre-release level, I will usually remind my opponents about their triggers the first time per the type of trigger. RL zero. If I'm playing at a PTQ. I'm not going to remind my opponent about triggers that are going to be bad for me. There's no chance. Yeah, and that's that's what the policy incentivizes people to do. And I think that now the line has moved a little bit and we want you to go like we don't want you to go over the line. Like I my my heart is breaking for the people who are going to misinterpret this policy and somehow get themselves DQ'd, right? Like like clumsily angle shooting is a really great way to get yourself like disqualified from a tournament, yeah. which sucks. Sucks. Like that's a, that's not a line that we should really move a lot, but yeah, I I think it's going to be um I think it's interesting and I, and I um I really like what what Vince has to say about like does this mean that we should think about how our own like internal ethics should motivate what, like our alignment with policy and is it okay like you know is it how do we feel about angle shooting really and how does that make us feel about these changes in policy and what am i going to do next time i ghost quarter a guy and they don't get anything and how am i going to feel about having to remind them like and why does it feel different than triggers and and all of that stuff yeah, I honestly think a lot of it's just going to be growing pains for people who are competitive players. Because I think it's just the kind of thing that a lot of people are used to getting free value off of things they probably shouldn't be. And once they realize, like you've said, that it's just like a trigger, like it's something that you should have been doing probably from a from a perspective of moral, you know, goodness, but now it's an actual policy. I think, like, over... Maybe Doug's right. After, you know, a brief period of time, people will just be like, it's this is how it works now, it's fine. So, yeah, I think that's... I think all in all, it's probably for the better. It's just gonna suck for a while when you feel like you should have been rewarded and you're not. Yeah, I think that... And if I am laggy still, I do apologize. I think that I'm bringing the truth on a whole other level. So someone out there is trying to shut me down. And I think that's what's going on. And so I I will not relent. I'll not relent in my pursuit for the truth, players. So please just stand by me in my hour of darkness. But um, jokes aside, Jedi mind tricks, yeah, it is how you align. I missed a little bit when I was uh, restarting there. But I have a Jedi mind trick that has haunted me to this date, that has educated how I play to this day because i felt so bad about it and the simple scenario was my opponent in game two had played an act of treason type effect he could steal my card and in game three i was at uh, i was at 10 life and he had uh he had a 2-2 creature and he was at like four and i had that 4-4 territorial bailoth when you play a land it gets plus two plus two and i had an adventuring gear on it when i when you play a land it gets plus two plus two my opponent drew his card and excitedly looked over and started to do something and then stopped for a second and looked and said, and that was the only two creatures in play. And he, he had like three cards in hand, but only four mana. And he said, so 
if I play a land with that Bailoth in play, will it get plus... Like, no, he didn't say will it get plus four, plus four. He's like, if I play a land with that Bailoth in play, what happens? So now I'm like, okay, he has an active treason, and I have a choice of, like, I said to him, this is what you should do, is you can call a judge, but I'm going to tell you what happens if I play a land. If I play a land, it will trigger getting plus two, plus two, and my adventuring gear will trigger giving it plus two, plus two. That's what I said to him. And he said, okay, excitedly tapped his mana, played active treason, grabbed my card, played a land, and attacked. And I said, okay, I'll take eight. And he said, wait, why is it not ten? I said, because it's my adventuring gear. So savage. Oh. It's my adventuring gear. And he's like, wait, but you said, I said, I said, if I played a land, not if you played a land. Now, this has haunted me to this <laughs> day. Like, this is, this is my darkest of days. <laughs> like, I... I feel like I've rectified this by one day. I went to our head judge and said, I have a Doomwake Giant in play. If I play an enchantment and just attack, I don't have to say anything, right? Like, I don't have to tell him that his creatures are all minus until after he blocked. And the judge is like, yes, that is how the rules work. So I did that, and I did the attack, and my opponent was about to line up his blocks, and I just went, just so you know, your guy's smaller. I just, like, had to tell him. <laughs> because I'm, like, haunted to this day about... But but I think that that's good that I went through this. And, and shout out to Aaron Campbell, who... One day, I didn't know who the guy I scummed was. One day at a GP, he just walked into my hotel room, and I'm like looking like, oh my god, that's the guy I scummed. Does he know I'm the one who scummed <laughs> I was like afraid in my own room. Yeah, so my point is, I now am a more honest player because of that, even though I went to Gavin immediately after. I'm like, Gavin, you might have to DQ me. This is what I just did. And Gavin was like, nope, you did nothing wrong. And I was like, okay, but I just feel so gross about it that I want to change my behavior. So... I think the rules are now progressing in a way that players who are admirable don't have to feel gross about their behavior, and players who are scummy don't get an easy out to abuse behavior, it, if that makes sense. It definitely raises, like, the moral floor for a Magic player. That's that's definitely, yeah. like, the overarching intention, it seems. Like, at least let's yeah. let's try to reduce how scummy the scummiest people are. I think and a lot of what uh, Doug was talking about ties in really nicely to what KYT kind of start, kicked the whole section off with is that he's, it's good for it's good for the game. If it's good for the community, it's good for the game. Like ultimately, like spikes want to crush, and it doesn't really work if there aren't other people there to crush, right? Like you need people to show up to these tournaments. If it's just if it's growing, if it's going to make the game a percentage more like easier for people to get into, then that's good for everybody. I will say one other thing that I don't know if this is actually intentional or not, but this also kind of makes Paper Magic slightly closer to Digital Magic in terms of your experience, right? And I'm pretty sure that's probably front and center on the mind of Watsi right now is let's try to make those two experiences as similar as possible so people that, you know, we're going to get fresh blood from MTG Arena. We want to make sure those people, when they go play Paper Magic, don't suddenly go like, wait, this is ridiculous. People are basically cheating to beat me. I don't like this at all. So small things like that might actually have a big impact. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. Man, lots of good points. I just want to jump in here and uh, mention how, like, with the Jedi Mind Tricks, it reminds me of when, a long time ago, I was a subscriber to a site called MTG Insider, at the time run by... Uh, who is now who I now know has a really sketchy reputation, Mike Long. But at the time, I didn't know. And the site was pretty good. That's where I ended up meeting Sam Stoddard, who works for for Watsi, because he was part of that group as well. And um, it was just one of those typical. They wrote me in. 
your typical marketing site with, with a lot of jazz on the website, Ropian, um, and they had a PDF, and which I think Next Level Magic by, by Patrick Chapin I should borrow a lot from. Or I think he probably contributed to, to Next Level Magic because I know he's good friends with Mike Klong. And in that book, there was a section, in the PDF rather, there's like a section about Jedi mind tricks and actually playing like since... I started, there's always these stories and, and how people are proud of uh, Jedi mind tricking their opponent. And uh, before I, I asked John a question, uh, Vince Lee, you mentioned like some people, I understand people who are upset about this change because like sometimes I get punished for ha not knowing how cards work and I would have known more if I just played a few extra games or play tests more. And I feel like I deserve to get punished to not know how like a certain matchup worked or, or, or certain card interaction. So in that sense, I get why people are pissed about that or, or upset. Um, but, but John, what I wanted to ask was like, the, the main question a lot of people are asking right after is like, how do Shoal, uh, how do, uh, is it Shoals? No, no, how do uh, traps work? Oh my goodness. Uh, traps are a little bit before my time, actually like paying a lot of attention to cards. Uh, let me just go find one here. Ba -ba 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 -ba. Trying to think of you guys have like be weird while he's uh, finishing like while he's searching i'll just say that in my opinion um people who are playing traps in magic right now are in a format modern where they know why they're playing traps i'm pretty <laughs> sure because they look at their buddy and say why is this mind break trap in my sideboard this card's terrible and they're like oh it's because if they do this then you can uh, excel those cards or they're like yo what is ricochet trap in the sideboard of my living end deck for i don't understand it's like Oh, because uh, it's a one mana counterspell in red when you retarget the counterspell at the Rickshaw Trap. So he, he can answer, but I, I don't think traps are going to be a huge issue outside of like yeah. EDH. So this is really interesting. Maybe, and there might be something that I'm missing. Um, uh, so what is it that people are, are worried about? Like, I'm looking well, at my I'm not trap. Talking about, I don't think I'm thinking about trap. I'm thinking about like, uh, now, why is it escaping my mind so badly? Uh, it's uh, <laughs> are you talking uh, about packs? Yeah, yeah, packs. That's what I was thinking. Oh, 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 oh. And people oh, say because okay. it's like it's not your card. It's like that's what people are saying. It's not your card. It's your, your that your opponent doesn't have to tell you anything. Still, like, it just, that it changes nothing. Uh, yeah, what's the actual rule, John. So, uh, and this ties in a little bit to what we were talking about earlier with Miss Triggers. So, this rule doesn't really change packs because. So I'm playing a game a game against you, KYT, and you you've got a pack trigger on your upkeep. That's not an effect that I control, right? I'm not, not packing you. It's like path is an effect that I control, but you are participating in the resolution of that spell, right? Like I don't control the pack trigger. That's just on you. So I I don't see this rule as touching the way I don't think they're gonna change the way they work. Can I throw a small wrench into this? Please. What about hive mind? So uh. Right? Because I don't play enough, I, I don't I, play enough EDH. Okay, so, so essentially, like, there was a deck, I think it was a Legacy deck, where you would play Hive Mind, which, whenever you play a spell, your opponent gets a copy of that spell, essentially. For, for the sake of this argument, let's just say that's what Hive Mind does. And you would pack, and your opponent would get a copy of the pack, and then they would lose a game because they wouldn't be able to pay the pack cost on their upkeep. In that situation, do I have to remind my opponent about their pact that I have made them cast? Oh. Because they don't even oh, own the card, right? <laughs> right. They've never even experienced the so, card potential. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question, and it kind of it can sort of feel like 
uh, they're doing something similar. So my educated guess at this point, and I, I could be wrong, but my interpretation of the policy as written uh, is that this new section applies to not assuming your opponent is taking certain shortcuts, not assuming that they've made uh, certain choices. Packs are triggered abilities with default options. I know it's super technical language, but uh, they are they are different in that regard. So if you create a copy of an effect and your opponent now has a copy of that pack trigger, it's still not an effect. Technically, according to the game, it's still not an effect you control. Right. You might have a, you know, you might have like a, a psychological responsibility <laughs> for now creating this effect for your opponent to now think about right like but you don't have an in-game responsibility you don't control like you're not uh you're not the controller of an object on the stack with which the opponent is participating gotcha. when the uh, object resolves right um i don't foresee even with hive mind uh which is um it does make it super interesting and if we're talking, if we're using the language of English, it definitely looks like a choice that they're making. Um, but magic works in slightly different terms. And the fact that it's a triggered ability with a default option means that it's not a shortcut or technically a choice according to the game rules. So this new policy change doesn't really, doesn't touch that. They still, if they forget their pack trigger, they still lose. Yeah, I think that's John, Yeah, but... The the difference I just want to say about that though is like this this isn't a, an optional choice right the you know it's not you may pay for or if you don't lose the game like you said it's got that result I think right. a closer analogy to the same thing is arcane denial and I've heard this one a lot because arcane denial is like counter spell and then on your opponent's upkeep that player may draw two cards oh so you you're giving them a trigger that's a delayed trigger. That your card is creating that's for their upkeep to draw cards and under the old rules it wasn't your responsibility to tell them on their upkeep that they should draw two cards it was their responsibility to remember that your arcane denial gave them two cards because it was do you know what i mean whereas now i feel like now here's the the part the players are getting confused is when they first read the rules they're like Oh, of course you have to remind them now. But then I've had this huge argument in a group chat that I'm a part of where people are like, no, because I've resolved my card properly and now I get to wipe my hands of it because my card's done. <laughs> Path is during resolution, which is why I have to remind them. Reality Smasher is during resolution, which is why I have to do it. Now I've given the ball to them and it's now their responsibility. And, and that's a little murky, but it yeah. all comes down to the thing, I think. Do you want, uh, I, th I think I've got an educated guess. Do you want an answer to that, to the arcane denial thing? Like, or like my my best guess at what, sure. would, what would happen? Okay, so. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, yeah. So um, the controller of a trigger is the player who controlled the thing that made the trigger, right? So like, if you control Bob, then when Bob's trigger goes on the stack, you control that trigger, all right? If I arcane denial your spell, I controlled arcane denial, which means uh, on your upkeep, I control that trigger. Even though it's happening on your turn, it's still my trigger. So what that so so what that means is I pre like if I'm reading this right, then this rule actually does change arcane denial. I think I do have to remind you to draw. What does it say here? Its controller may draw up to two cards. Yep. Yeah. So if you do, if you do. If you just draw like one, if you like untap and draw one card and you're like, and you like play a land, 
my interpretation is that I have a responsibility to go, hold on, hold on, hold on. Are you intentionally not drawing any cards for Arcane Denial? Yeah. Yeah. And even if you happen, you drop two on third turn and one for Arcane Denial, I also feel like you have to communicate with them because it says to him, your opponent doesn't realize it's two. Yeah. Draw a card. For, right, or, right, or right. Maybe right. they drew two and forgot their draw step. Mm. Two cards and draw a card. Yeah. Right? I think that works on the level. Um, thank you. Really see my. <laughs> so if I a terrible lag here, <laughs> Doug has entered the matrix. He's on the grid. <laughs> yeah, uh, honestly, like that complication. Like if they if they draw two cards and you're like, did they choose to draw like up to one or what's going on? Are they for the girls drop? That one, I'll be honest with you, policy isn't super clear on it from what I'm seeing here. What I would hope someone would do is you would just ask. But I don't know if you now have a responsibility. If it's clear that they remembered some portion of it, or like if it's clear that, like the language here says, they must seek confirmation that a choice with no visible impact was taken. So if no visible impact happened at all, you have a responsibility to confirm that they meant to do nothing. But if it looks like they maybe did something, then uh, I don't know. That's where we start to wander into like maybe we have to figure that out a little bit. I would hope that people would ask, but I don't know if you have to ask. Hmm. John, I brought in all the Jedi mind tricks and everything, uh, and then the packs, because I've seen a lot of players make it like part of their routine that they have to do when their opponent casts a pack. They will you know, try to distract them before their upkeep by either asking them cards in hand. Like, like people, this is like, I feel like you're taught this by players around that you should like look at your opponent's side uh, graveyard, like think a little, tank a bit, put it back, just do a whole bunch of shenanigans <laughs> and hope your opponent just draws and goes, oh crap, I'm dead. Um, so that's why it's like, it's, and I've seen that happen. I've seen players come to me after they've won like that, say like, oh man, I, I got him. I, I completely like asked so many questions and then he just forgot, stuff like that. So. Isn't that like, I guess maybe it doesn't happen that often, Bits, what, what do you, actually, I'll go to you, Bits, have you heard about this type of stuff? I, I hear it yeah, quite a lot when course. Pat was around. I mean, like, this is a card game played by a lot of people, and all these people, a lot of them have a serious incentive to try to do well, and we've seen how far some people take it, they'll actually, like, genuinely cheat, they'll manipulate their deck, they'll do whatever they have to do to win, but obviously, within the, the realm of the current rules, people are going to do whatever they want, right? And this is a perfect example of that. I mean, I don't know if this rule change specifically will help with that, but I mean, forward progress is clearly being made, and um, hopefully there will be some kind of long-term solution to all of the scummy things that people can do, but I mean, you can't expect perfection, right? And I do want to say real quick, um, given that we're kind of bombarding John with all these weird side scenarios live. <laughs> this is one of the things about magic that's really cool, right? Because this game is so complex and there's so many layers of interacting cards from like 20 years ago to today and so many rules and so many new mechanics and all this kind of stuff that one small change like this can have a huge ripple effect on a bunch of really small things that you don't consider and that's part of the reason why our community has people like John because we need people to uh, be able to arbitrate when the rules aren't as explicit as they could be. And, um, you know, it, it's neat to have you here to, to kind of think about or see what it's like from the, the mind of a judge as, as these questions come huh. up, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, yeah. No, thank. And this is this is a really great discussion because this is the kind of thing that um, it's really critical to like rules changes like this are really critical to the health and the future of the game in many ways because this hits exactly the intersection of casual players competitive players and the judging community right like this touches on all this is that little that landmark that's in the tri-state area that's right on the border of all of them right and this is the kind of thing that if we can get this right then casual players don't feel like they're being scummed out by by spikes trying to you know crush them at pre-releases uh you know, spikes feel like, okay, you know what, like, th I used to have this avenue, but I guess me, if I think about it, maybe I shouldn't have, and I guess it's good that I now I don't. And then judges are like, oh my God, thank goodness that we have like one less angle shoot that people, one less line that people will try to walk. And now I have to fill out a bunch of paperwork because they didn't actually understand the nuance of it. They just got it wrong. They just heard somebody go off on a podcast and misinterpreted the policy. And then now I'm DQ'd from a pre-PTQ top eight because I thought this is how it works. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, my talk about uh, PAX surprise you? Uh, a little bit, uh, only because you asked me to be on the podcast 20 minutes before it started. Oh. <laughs> and so I started, I was like, yeah, no, I skimmed it, but I guess I'll give it a deeper read. So I don't know. You constantly surprise me, KYT. It's just, it's just <laughs> magical having you in my life. This is wonderful. But do you foresee that being changes because of my, my stories of people? Like, really? I, I think that's the number one thing that people, that's what I thought. That's why people talked about yeah. PAX. There's like so many PAX stories, triumphs of like getting people with PAX. Like, because it's a free win, and then there's stories of uh, Kenji Sumura, right? The, the the guy who is has this clean reputation of, of sportsmanship that he's the one that like will will make you pay for Pat. I mean, that's the the myth. Wow, the stories that I've wow. heard, um, likely true, wow. Doug. <laughs> oh, it's true. So basically, I, I also, by the way, they took my first router down, but I prepared for this day, so I had a backup ready. So we're on the backup now. So I think we're clean. Um, BDM tells the story really well, but he was at a GP and he walked up to Kenji and Kenji just looked miserable. And he's like, Kenji, how are you doing? And Kenji was like, oh, I'm 7-0 I'm or whatever the number was. It was a really good record. And he's like, oh, that's great. And Kenji was like, ah, ah, like just upset. He's like, what? What happened? He's like, ah, my opponent failed to pay for Pact and lost because of it. And BDM was like, oh, that's awesome. And he's like, no, no, I tried to stop him in time and remind him to pay, but it was too late. He drew his card. And I remember hearing on Top A Magic when BDM talked about this, it was almost like this awakening of like, he got to see that raw human feeling of, wow, we didn't get to finish this great game of Magic. I'll never know if I would have beaten this guy just because he screwed up on this new card that got printed two months ago. And he didn't understand that he had to pay on his upkeep or he forgot or whatever. And he just felt so just ashamed that that's how he had to win was through a screw-up. And I remember hearing that, and it really, this was around the time of this Jedi mind trick I, I told you about when I heard that episode, because I was back going back through the archives, <laughs> Top 8 Magic, listening to all their old stuff. And yeah, like I, I wish more people were like that. I wish more people just wanted to win at Magic and not wanted to win at Mind Game. I think You know what I mean? I think it's really good that you brought that up, because I think there's a common misconception as people are kind of leveling up through their Magic career, so to speak that in order to become better or in order to get to that next level of competitive magic play, you need to become a more harsh player. You need to become a little bit more strict with the rules. You need to try to do these kind of things. And I think seeing someone like Kenji, who's clearly a very, very talented magic player and infinitely better than most people who are going to be trying to compare themselves to him, 
is such a stand-up guy when it comes to following the rules and trying to maintain the integrity of the game and is still doing as well as he's doing, it kind of throws a lot of mud in the, the whole idea that you have to be kind of this like cold, heartless machine in order to be good at magic. So it's a, it's a good look. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's actually... You know, you know. Oh, there's actually a thing in uh, the judge community that we call the Levine Trench. Have you guys heard of this? No. All right. No. I will tell you. I will tell Please. you about the the Levine Trench goes like this. Is it this. secret? Is it top secret? Uh, no, I think he wrote an article. So, like, uh, shout out to Eric Levine. The guy is honestly, like, one of the best. Like, the guy is an amazing judge on a technical level and also just an amazing person to be with. Uh, nothing but good for the game. Nothing but good for the community. Okay. Levine Trench works like this. You have an X-axis and a Y-axis. On the X-axis, going left to right, you have player skill all right so you have a zero point of skill and a hundred point of skill we'll put whoever you want on the far right if you're like a lsv fan if you're a finkel fan if you're a buddha fan like if you're a pv fan whatever right and zero point is like you know me 1994 buying brass claw orcs out of a vending machine in fredericton new brunswick all right all right then your y-axis is like player kindness like player ethics right when you're at the zero point you're at the maximum you're at the highest on the y scale uh you are you don't really care you just want to have fun you just want to play your like 100 card polar kraken deck like you just want to like have five friends over and play like multiplayer in your mom's living room floor right but then so you go to f and m and maybe you win a little bit and then you're the the y-axis goes down a little bit and you become a little less friendly because you're like oh man maybe if i just just like win and you see other people who are winning a lot and they're like a they're more competitive and they like count their opponents decks and stuff they try to put them on tilt and it keeps going it keeps going and then it, it dips below the zero point it's like uh shoot i forget what this what's the what's the it's like a cosine or a sign one of them is like a one of them like is like a u anyway whatever dips below the zero point at around you hit the pre-ptq top eight like rptq level and at like rptqs and like round six and seven of WMCQs were at the bottom of the trench. You get all the angle shooting. You get, you know what I mean? It's like the, the worst guy, like people. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and honestly, like, I'm not making any judgments about these people as people, right? I'm sure we like a lot of the same foods. I'm sure we would really dig on a lot of the same Netflix shows. You know what I'm saying? But like some of the, that's where everyone is just like really trying to skirt that line, like really trying to get every edge they can. And then it goes back up right then they start getting on the pro tour more often right then they start becoming like rely every now and then they get on the like their nationals team and it starts going back up and then you get up to that lsv kind of like lsv is not going to scumbag people like he doesn't need to do that like pv is not going to angle shoot someone by not reminding them about their path like regardless of whether or not he wants to like they just don't have to do that anymore so I'm my hope is like Vince you said something awesome when you said we're bringing the floor up like I look forward to seeing the floor of that Levine trench kind of go up just a notch or two um, and if you think that you have to do that stuff you don't because look at the people who have had career success they don't do that or if they have been they always grow out of it like you know you hear stories from Turtlewald who used to be like you know he had a rep for being that guy but he started to get a lot more successful and he, he's on the record apologizing to people for the kind of player he used to be like you don't have to be that yeah i i totally echo that and it's funny because as a player right now who will just go to a random pro tour a year kind of that's my average for the past you know six-ish years is just one pro tour there is a there are three players right now who are actually very notorious for if you sit down against them you just know i feel like with certainty that they're going to be clear if you need to draw a card they're going to tell you if you need to bring something back from your graveyard they're going to tell you 
And those three players that are notorious for this right now are Reed Duke, Owen Turnwald, and William Jensen. All of them are notorious for that right now. And if you don't know that about them, I guarantee if you play against them on a GP, they are notorious for that right now. I'm not talking about who they were in the past. I'm just talking about right now. And the funny thing is, they're also arguably the most dominant force in the game right now. And I think that um, you, you, you had an interesting line in there that I think is slightly off where you said they don't have to. So it's almost as if, and you're right, they don't have to, but it's almost as if you, when you get good enough, you no longer have to do that. I think the secret is you get good enough when you realize you, you, you just don't do that. When you don't do that and you don't play like that, you can actually start getting better at magic. So if you actually want to get better at magic, stop trying to trick people and start trying to tell them exactly how the board gate should board state should go because then you will lose more games than you would normally most likely but you're losing because of the mistakes you made on earlier turns you're losing because you didn't think through all of their outs you're losing because you lost focus at a key moment and attacked with a creature you shouldn't and then you can learn from those mistakes that you're making that are causing you to lose when you try to band-aid the game by just doing these mind tricks to win games you should have never won and then you try to play against an lsv or an owen or a pv they're not going to screw up so your whole game plan is hinged on this band-aid solution for getting better at magic to get better it's something that like i was taught a long time ago and recently a friend worded it like this which i love if in competitive magic there's not wins and losses there's wins and lessons and I would even go one past that. I think that even in your wins, you need to take a critical look and realize that there's lessons to be made in your wins. You did not play a flawless game. You made mistakes and you might have given them 10 more percent, 20 more percent, even 55 more percent because you made a stupid play and they now had a top deck at all but two cards in their deck and they just happened to brick and you won the game, right? Just get... This Jedi mind trick crap, that's why I called it scummy. I have a harsh opinion against it. Just get it all out of your game. I used to be bad at it. I told you I've changed. And now I'm I'm succeeding. Playing Magic Online helps a lot too, because you can't really Jedi mind trick on Magic Online unless you're some notorious Albertan who likes to trade spam people to get them to time out. But that's a whole other subject. So, yeah. That, oh man, and that story, that Kenji story was too good. That, story, that BDM Kenji story was amazing. Um, and... Wow, just uh, and everything you said, that I, I definitely agree with everything you, that you just said. And but I, w I was still, um, like I mentioned earlier, when I was getting more and more competitive, it just felt like Jedi mind tricks. People thought it was a big thing. I mean, like I said, it was a big part of that PDF I got. I think there might have been some mention of it in Next Level Magic. I'd have to go reread it. I haven't read, read that book in ten years, um, and it just felt like. A big thing to be proud of and stuff like that so for for, for you to tell it how it should be doug that, that's you for for even me to change what i've thought for so long and now what's like even bdm and well in that story you were just like hyped i don't think that that kenji won that way that was cool that he won that way but i don't know like it, a lot of people just like celebrate when they get them right in a, in a <laughs> cheap way yeah well, and that's something like Doug was telling the story about Gavin uh, saying that the rules should incentivize you to do the right thing. We shouldn't create rules that incentivize you to do the wrong thing. And the game's changed. Like, Gotcha Magic used to be part of it. It used to be expected that when you went to the Pro Tour, people were going to cheat and you should try to catch them. And you should also be trying to cheat your opponents. Like, this is some like late 90s stuff, right? 
and the rules have evolved, techniques have evolved, we've learned a lot, and it's small little incremental improvements like this that create little behavioral incentives and hopefully these little nutrients kind of get metastasized by the community uh in the right way and i don't know we we uh have a, a slightly better version of the game this year than we did last year uh one last thing before we let you go john yeah, on man. this on this tournament rules update I, I think the only thing that was that maybe caught my eye, but there weren't too many details on it was the whole bribery thing. I know like bribery oh. and how to clear that up was is it has been a, a notable issue over the years. And are you happy with whatever the change uh was or is? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Honestly, like the it's a really tricky spot in policy where some TO has done a bad job of their pricing structure. And if, you know, me and Vince sit down in round four of a Swiss event and we do the math and if we draw, we, there's more between the two of us than if we play. And so we sit there and we go, okay, how do we make this work? Anyway, that stuff is a huge mess. Uh, there wasn't really a functional policy change. You still can't, you still can't say stuff like, hey, you know, you scoop to me and I'll, we'll split prizes. You can't do that. You know, you can't say, oh, the pro points really mean a lot to me. So, like, I'll give you a drive home after this if you scoop to me. You can't do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is it was like a clarification to make it easier for non-native speakers because it is really technical stuff. Um, yeah. Do you guys want to talk about the uh, do you guys want to talk to there's a change? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Oh man, you would not, there's this crazy, like you would not believe what magic players find valuable, right? Like it, it's the, the exchanges that you see in DQ reports are sad and hilarious. I, I just think like the, the first part is like what I've been taught or heard, like you won't really want to emphasize. I really, really want the buys. And that's like what you say afterwards. Like, get you in trouble. <laughs> Yep, it's true, man. Like, well, basically, the policy works like, and I don't, know, I don't want to dwell on it too, too much because there was a pre-release last weekend. You guys don't want to hear me gas on about rules all day, right? But like, you are allowed to share prizes with your with other players because we can't make a rule that says otherwise. An unenforceable rule is a bad rule. We cannot force you to take your packs home with you, right? So, unenforceable rule is a bad rule. You're allowed to share your prizes, whatever. We also can't stop you from drawing because that's an unenforceable rule. What are we going to do? Are we going to just like make you play magic and then you're just going to sit there and play draw go and now judges have to try to evaluate what is a good play and a bad play, right? It's terrible. It's, it's, it's a disaster. So unenforceable rule is a bad rule. We have to let you draw. We have to let you split prizes. The only thing we can tell you is that those two sentences can't touch each other. You can't cross the streams, right? Like you can't, you can say, hey, do you want to share prizes when we're done? And your opponent can go, dope. Yeah, why not? And then you say, cool. Do you want to scoop to me? And they can go, nope. And then you have to play. Like all of that is fine. Uh, you can't, you can't get close. If you're like, hey, I really need the buys. Do you want to split prizes? Sorry. Like that's even something like that is too close. Like you can't, you can't do that stuff. So really it just sucks because you want to. Really, you just want to say the two sentences you said if you want to try to to share prizes. Stop. That's a bit, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The secret is you just tell the person, let's just play not split, and then you let them tilt at you and get mad at you, and then they just beat you and they get the buys and they get the prizes. But then you top eight the GP. So ultimately <laughs> yeah. just like you exactly. do you. Who is the real winner, Doug? 
Who was the real? I, I think I'm glad we didn't split still. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Still Man, that is that is an elegant intersection of Jedi mind tricks and bribery right there. <laughs> Very nice little wrapping up of the whole conversation uh, of the last hour. Yeah. You said you wanted to mention one last thing? Oh, yeah. Do you guys want to talk about, there was a small change to exert and the mistrigger policy. Do you guys want to talk about that real quick or you just want to push? You just want to no, push no, on? no. So sum it up for us. Okay, so... Basically, the following consider the following situation. A card reads, I'm so bad with card names, by the way, so I don't know, fill in the blanks. Or, or uh, Those of you who are listening, who know what we're talking about, you can leave a comment or you can uh, shout at me later on Facebook. So imagine a card which reads, uh, you may exert card when it attacks. Uh, or uh, uh, when you exert card, draw a card. There's like an exert draw card, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, or, oh, no, no, better version is the, shoot, what's the 3-2 when you exert it gets plus 2, plus 2? Thank you. So, the following sequence of events. I tap my hooded brawler, and I say, exert. And then I look at you, and we got 100 milliseconds of awkwardness, okay? And then you go, okay, and you block with a (laughs) 4-4. All right? You block with a 4-4, and I say, cool, they trade, and you're like, nope, you did not acknowledge your trigger. Under the previous policy, that was correct because exert was not technically tied to the trigger. It says when you exert, like if you do, then a trigger happens. Vince is like leaning back in his chair, like what? <laughs> I didn't know this. I didn't even know yeah. this. Oh my God, Vince, everyone yeah. who's listening, go watch the VOD. You gotta go tune in. <laughs> that was, yeah. <laughs> so they changed it. Now just saying exert is considered sufficient that you've that you've acknowledged the trigger. I'm fairly uh, confident that this happened with an on crop crasher at an important tournament, and this spurred oh, the really? rules change because I'm pretty sure someone attacked with an on crop crasher was like exert and like didn't name because there's only one mm. legal target. His opponent only had one creature, and his opponent blocked. And he's like, no, I said exert. He's like, I understand you said exert, but you didn't name the target. So yeah, yeah, yep. and this. I like this a lot. It feels like uh, like we were all playing back in the Pyroheart Wolf Restoration Angel days. Like, so Pyroheart Wolf is it's basically like a creature. You can imagine that it has a trigger that gives it menace, and you attack, and you don't say anything. And then your opponent flashes in a Resto Angel and blocks, and you say, "Well, hold on, I attacked it has menace." And the Resto Angel player says, "Uh, uh, uh, you didn't set, you didn't announce your trigger back then. You could get like." you had to explicitly announce every single trigger. And this feels like a kind of a quality of life upgrade in that way. Um, there are a couple of like small little edges where if the trigger is a target, so something like Glorybringer, like you, it's really best practice to just be like exert, kill that guy or tap it or something or like just indicate in any way that is reasonable that you are aware of your trigger and mean to do something. If you just exert your glory bringer for no reason and don't specify a target, then you might end up in a rabbit hole where somebody's convinced that you technically didn't acknowledge it in the proper way. So, but anyway, for, for triggers that don't have targets, this is a big quality of life upgrade. The, the secret, I think that everything we just talked about the whole last hour can be boiled down to two words, in my opinion, and that's just communicate. It's, yeah. it's just so simple. And I'm going to give an example that is perfect for what you're just talking about. I had to 3 the last pod to Top 8 Toronto. And I played against a good friend of mine and a GP winner, Tyler Bloom. And we're in game one. And he has three creatures in play. And I've been mana screwed the entire game. I, I'm so dead. He has three exert creatures in play. And one of them is the 3-2 guy that when you exert anything, you can tap target creature. 
So he goes to combat, and I only have two creatures in play, a 4-4 and a 2-3. And he goes, attack with these three, exert, exert, exert. Draw a card, plus two, plus two, and tap your 4-4. And I'm like, holy smokes, he has no idea that that card says when you exert anything. He thinks it's when you exert it. I still, in that moment, said, okay, is that all of your triggers? <laughs> and he said, yes. And I said, the only thing you're tapping is my 4-4. And he said, yes. Because I was not going to even come close to waiting in the territory of getting him. I was just not willing to. I was willing to lose the game before I was willing to do that. And that simple communication, then I ended up getting to trade with his 3-2. I ended up top-decking land. I ended up winning game one. I ended up feeling so guilty that after game one, he was like kind of mad that I had been mana screwed and had been grumbly and he ended up losing. So I said to him, just so you know, Tyler, your 3-2 is when you exert anything. You could have just tapped my team and like it was, you would have put me to one and you wouldn't have lost your guy. And he was obviously upset, but I, I educated him on his card between game one and two, which probably shouldn't have done, like, technically, because he could have then beat me with it later, right? Because it's way more powerful when you know you can just cast it from your hand and exert what's already in play. But the trick there is I communicated with him, and I I really gave him the rope to, to hang <laughs> me. Like, I, I really said, you know, but at the end of the day, I don't have to play for him. I just have to clearly communicate with him. And in all those examples Vince was saying and the way the old rules were is people were intentionally not communicating properly with their opponent so that their opponent would miss something as opposed to just being really clear, getting, you know, I, I wasn't angle shooting. He had forgotten. He didn't know how his card worked. It's one of the only ones that uh, he had drafted that was exert anything. And Tyler and I both didn't really play test for the GP. We just kind of showed up. Um, so yeah my, my point basically is with everything we've been talking about it's just communicate better yeah you'll lose games because i i look over is that the only one you're tapping and then he looks and he thinks why is he asking that question rereads all his cards and goes oh my god no i'm also tapping those two and i go okay scoop right like that could have happened i could have and then i wouldn't have top eight of the gp like that very well was a reality i was willing to face um and i think more players should be i'm no angel i've I had to learn this lesson the hard way i just think all players should play like that we're here to play magic once again we're not here to play mind games excellent stuff doug uh john thank you so much for coming on oh really man appreciate your time yeah absolute slice uh, i'm glad we were finally able to make this happen anytime there's like contentious rulesy stuff you let me know all right i'm gonna have to like uh i have to respond to why i picked you over chris later but uh <laughs> i should be fine <laughs> uh, oh man the the lansdale tilt value is the actually only reason i'm here <laughs> all right you have a great evening john thanks again thanks guys all right that was john good level three judge uh regional coordinator for canada so like really good to get his perspective and one of our head judges for for gp toronto so quite the important figure and to get his uh judge perspective on these new rules that are just announced today was pretty damn awesome but now to get to the fun stuff vince uh vince and doug played some pre-releases vince what uh I'll, I'll go with doug first as you uh do your directing uh doug how many pre-releases did you play and how successful were you i played in one and uh this may surprise you, but I hadn't read the full spoiler when I went into it. <laughs> I, I, I played one pre-release just because I had to work. Um, I work just so people you know, know why I've not been around as much as the job that I'm at now. I work uh, Wednesday to Sunday, 
So I had to work after the Saturday pre-release, but um, got to play. It was super fun. I went 4-0. Deck was phenomenal. I really don't attribute too much of my success to my technical play or even my um, ability to create my deck. I just happened to get a really sweet red-black aggro deck. And when I say really sweet, I think I had like nine two-drops. I had triple of the, the black five-mana removal spell that makes two treasures. And I had some bonkers rares, like the Inferno Titan guy that Searing Blazes your opponent, something Avatar. And I had the like four three guy that you can steal your opponent's creatures. What? And I had the five I had the five mana banner that pumps all of your creatures of a certain type. And then when you play them, you draw a card. And I had the three three dino for three with menace that players can't gain life. And uh, they lose life when they play stuff, which when you have nine two drops, as well as like I think I had six removal spells. Um like I had the lava axe thing and I had um dual shot which was amazing for me um my deck was just like nine out of ten rares unconditional removal i only played six black cards so it was just the mana was great i even had for fun a dragon skull summit that was foil so yay so it's just like even better mana that comes into play untapped um deck was nuts and i had the goblin bombardments card which let me tell you when you have a ton of treasure and it says sack a creature or artifact you control you have triple convicted killing and double of the two one for two that when it dies, you get an artifact. You go off. And when five times you happen to draw the Goblin Bombardment and the guy who steals your opponent creatures, you just get to start stealing their creatures and chucking them at them. So yeah, I lived the dream. Deck was great. Uh, coolest thing about the pre-release for me was a player named James Lloyd. Um, he drafted, or drafted, sorry, he played a sealed deck that was blue-black uh, with one forest. And he, in this deck, played the red-white Planeswalker. And in this deck, he played the, a red-green uh, dinosaur rare. And in this deck, he played a green-white busted rare. And the reason why he got to play all that is because he had three contract killing, which make two treasures each. They instantly unlock any of those rare, rares. He played two of the three, four pirate for five that makes two treasures. Instantly unlocks all of those rares. He, on top of those five treasure cards, had four more good treasure cards, like the blue bounce treasure card, uh, the two one for two treasure card. So his deck, he was calling it all day blue black treasure, and it was basically a blue black deck that you got to free splash your best possible cards. I think he also free splashed a, a red removal spell. Um, really, really, really cool deck. I think his deck might have also had the the blue green mythic that you draw a bunch of cards equal to how many creatures you had in play. So it was kind of like five color good stuff, but instead of a green shell, it was a blue black shell, and I'm very excited for that. Uh, reality to start unfolding as we start playing this format and getting to do these like choices where we play more treasure enablers as mana fixers in these decks to make your deck more powerful um, but in his deck having those five drops i mentioned uh, he he had no problem casting his rares um, and the surprise factor when your opponent can't predict you're about to just slammer jam some off-color card is is amazing it was one of my favorite things that uh, at Toronto, I won a match where I had the mirror out and I tapped all my blue land and only had two mountains up. My opponent went for a play for the win, and this was two rounds to go, so like we're almost at top eight. I just tapped two mountains, turned my mirror into an island, tapped that mirrored island to unsummon his creature. And he just did not expect a blue card to be able to ruin his day. Um, this is a similar concept, just masked through the treasure cards. So that's my kind of take on the previous. I was super hyped. Um, decks were fun it seemed like there was a good amount of removal um i know vince has an opinion about synergy which i'll let him get into but i found that 
just playing a ton of early drops and removal was more accessible in this format than it has been in a while, where you have two twos that if you have a dino are actually three threes on attack, you have two twos that have fire breathing on attack, you have two ones that you can just jam in for trades and get treasure to jump the tempo chain, you have three threes with menace for three pirate guys. Maybe it was just my pool, but I didn't have a ton of pirates, I didn't have a ton of dinos, I didn't really have a ton of anything. But almost all my creatures were creature type human, so when I played my banner, I would just name human, and I know that's not what they intended, because they wanted me to name dinos or pirates or merfolk or whatever, but naming human was sweet, and then going off and just playing guys and trying cards, so yeah, that's my opinion on the format. Super fun. I was really glad to be back playing live magic, and uh, this is the first time I've touched cards since GP Toronto, so it was super fun. Um, cheesy request, Doug. Very cheesy karaoke request from me. But uh, next time we're at karaoke, can you say Treasure by Bruno Mars? <laughs> I've already started practicing it uh, for, my, <laughs> for my pro tour. I want to just like right when I win the pro tour, just bust into a little bit of treasure in my speech. And because uh, we busted into Hallelujah when he won the pro tour and it was memorably horrible. So this I figure. Like... the only way to outdo a memorably horrible experience where really I was on key. But my uh, my hallelujah friends weren't. No, I'm just teasing. Yeah, we're gonna get some treasure going. Contract <laughs> killing is nuts. That card is stupid. How is that a real card? So good and limited. Holy smokes. Okay, let's have you jump in, Vince. How was your experience? Well, <laughs> I didn't get to open a pool with like four of the best red rares and three contract killings. So I didn't casually 4-0 my first sealed. I actually did quite poorly. I went 1-2-1 one, one, playing blue-green four-color merfolk. Um, I think my pool is terrible. Anyway, I'm not going to worry about like the, the details of the pool. I just want to talk about the format, because I did end up doing three of these pre-releases, and I think um, the format is a lot of fun. I think it's a lot different than A, what I was expecting out of a tribal format, and B, it's a lot different than previous formats for the last, about I would say, two years. Like, it 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 doesn't play a lot of people are saying you know it's just like a, it's an attack only format just like the last one and um i i don't agree completely i don't think that's necessarily the case i think there's a lot of good kind of mid-rangey controlling strategies i think there's a, like explore is a real mechanic that allows you to kind of build up card advantage over time build up you know or at least card quality over time sometimes um there are a lot of good tempo cards. There's a lot of these interesting archetypes, like the one Doug just mentioned, blue-black five-color. Um, but yeah, I think, in general, my sealed experience was that decks that favor tribal synergy tended to just overall be better. I know Doug's probably got an outlier deck where he just had a bunch of bomb rares and some good removal, like that will literally always win in sealed tournaments. Um, but... Yeah, in general, my experience was that synergy is king. Um, even the cards you were describing, Doug, like two of them, two of the four you talked about were better in tribal, right? The 2 2 that becomes a 3 3 is better in the dino deck, and the 3 3 menace is only a 3 3 menace in a pirate deck, or at least in when you have pirates out, right? So, um, yeah, I think, I think synergy is really important. I think when you open your pools in this format, what you want to look at is creature types at first and just go, like, okay, do I have enough dinos to build the dino deck? Do I have enough vampires to try to do some kind of vampire deck? I will say that it seems like different, like tr certain tribes are more important than other ones. Like I felt like the dino synergy was very real and the pirate synergy was 
pretty important. The Merfolk synergy is really important as well, but the cards seemed a little bit tuned down, relatively speaking. Um, I imagine that will change a lot in draft. Merfolk seems like a draft archetype, just because of the way it's designed and that it's got a lot of early drops and then tempo. And if you don't get enough depth of like one and two drops for the Merfolk deck, it just won't be good and sealed because you'll just lose to a random 3-4. Whereas if in the draft deck you'll have a bunch of unsummons and, and ways to interact with their larger threats. Um, but yeah, this format's fun. Um, I like that the rares aren't as good as they have been in previous sets. Like, I genuinely noticed when I opened all three of my pools that, like, half of my rares needed a lot of help to be good, or were just basically unplayable and, and limited. And I'm okay with that, because I think long-term, that kind of makes a more consistent experience in Sealed. Like, obviously you're going to have the decks where you have Inferno Titan and Active Reason on a Stick and a whole bunch of other stuff like that, but most of the time you're going to have a deck where you get, like, a land... uh um, a card that like like the Merfolk Lord, which is like fine, but it's nothing to write home about. Um, a bunch of cards that are just like kind of synergistic and good, but not objectively overpowered. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoy that about the format. I just I think I I wish there was a bit more of a kind of a glue to fix sealed pools that don't have good rares and don't have good tribal synergy. Like Lorwyn did a really good job by introducing changelings. It was a really good way for them to kind of bridge the gap between, you know, I didn't get enough elves, but I have, like, these three changelings to kind of make up for it. Even though they're not great, they can still function as elves. And at the same time, they're also giants and merfolk and goblins, whatever. Um, I thought that was a really smart way for them to fix tribal in a limited environment, and I kind of wish they had something beyond the blue rare as a way to make everything a creature type or make creature types a little bit more easy to access, but... We'll we'll see how it goes in draft. I'm curious to see. I'm excited to draft tonight on on uh, MTGO to see what what the set is like in draft. But so far, I'm enjoying it. I think dinos are really good. Feel like if I'm going to start drafting, I'm probably going to start looking at red white dinos as my my start because I like to start aggressive. And the common sort of pool of cards for that deck is absolutely insane, and they have really good uncommons as well. So, yeah, those are my thoughts so far. I just want to kind of counter something you said. I, I'm obviously not implying there's no synergy in this format. That's the most insane. No, I never. I, I didn't mean that but either. But go ahead. Yeah. What What I think is, you don't have to have a lot of a synergy in your deck for it to still play out really well. Because, for example, I have yes, I have two of these two twos for two that are human knights that pump off dinos. I only have four dinos. So some games I'm going to draw an opening hand where I get to, and I did it where I go. It was my last game. It was the first game I'd lost was in the very last round. And then it was game three for all the marbles. I'm on the play. And I went turn two, 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 turn three, dino, attack for three, turn four, three, three, dino. That's now a five power dino because I have another dino and I just win. Like it was just over. But in all my other games, I had to really critically evaluate at almost all points of the game. Should I be trading or attacking? Should I be dropping? Because I had... Uh, I had eight two drops as well as the one mana, one two that you can get death touch, which I played as a two drop often. Like I'd play it with a black up, so it would take two of my mana, so nine guys. And I have to evaluate which one do I play on turn three, because which one am I more likely going to have upside with later? Is it the fire breather that next turn I'm going to fire breathe through? Or am I trading so I should trade away my two two knight because I don't have many dinos? Or do I really need a three toughness creature to get through his two three for two? So do I need to play the knight just hoping to draw a dino because otherwise I'm not going to get through anyways by playing my 2-1? One. 
And I felt like, I almost felt like the inhibition that my deck had for, for synergy led to way more complicated decision trees, which is the type of thing I adore in Sealed because a better player can better utilize those decision trees to root out their best possible option. It wasn't just, I had the synergy pool that was A to B to C to win. And yes, I could just go creature, creature, bomb removal, right? Like I had that route. But I know there was games that I wasn't winning if I hadn't chosen to play this particular creature earlier, slow roll this creature, or, you know, I want to be more defensive and try to trade early because I want to get late game because then I can out eke my lack of synergy by just drawing more cards because the more cards I get, the more opportunity I'll have those synergies in my hands. Like if I get the game to go to turn 10, I'm more likely to have drawn a dino and a knight than turn three where opponents were going dino knight into dino and attacking. So uh, you're right. The synergy pools will be insane if we're just going to talk about what are the 10 out of 10 pools. Yes, the super synergy pools and the bomb removal spell pools will be those. But I think that you don't need to have a 10 out of 10 pool to 9 a, a GP. Of you just not. need to play like super well. And I think that this was so fun for me that this format had all of those little intricacies that if you didn't pay attention to those things and you just jammed that 2 2 hoping to draw that dino and then you had to trade it and then later in the game you just now have a week or two to because you wasted the one that could have synergy later you can't bust through an attack you lost that game for yourself and i loved that about this format um I, i'm not talking about like i didn't mean to say that like you know you did well because your pool was just insane obviously you're you're gonna foro with like most pools at a pre-release dug. I, I would never discredit you for that. I think the no, point. No, totally. I wasn't that, Okay, yeah. okay. I think the point I'm trying to make though is that your deck would probably just have been objectively better if all of your creatures happened to be in a better, it, or at least synergized better in terms of their creature type. And it felt like a lot of people that I was playing in decks that I saw just got free points because they had ten ten dinosaurs. Like just by default, the the power level of their deck is better now because. Their two two knights are more often three threes, or their three three pirates are more often menace. Like, yeah, just, I, I agree. That that was the thing that kind of, and, and what I was trying to call back to Lauren about was Lauren did a much better job of sort of lowering the variance in terms of my pool has twelve dinosaurs or my pool has three and I can't play dinosaurs, or I'm just playing a, a lower powered version of the deck. No, I I definitely agree, but for me, I guess I, I what I took it as is you said that that was something you didn't particularly like about this format was the synergy kind of made you if you didn't have a synergy pool potentially just be at a disadvantage but what i found in my experiences where especially i boarded in dual shot every game there was a guy who had played a ton of merfolk since we game one so game two when he just played the two one merfolk guy if you have another merfolk he's flying and i looked in my hand and i had a three drop a four drop and a five drop i was like i'm just dual shotting it one for one whereas if he hadn't played so many merfolks in game one i might have not just dual shot it at one for one because maybe he just had to play a two drop. And and I love, I actually love when a format creates those, those tension points where, you know, you're not usually punished for holding the dual shot. You can usually just wait to see what they play and maybe you take two extra damage, but you have to do it. I think the synergy almost pushes us towards better play because you're not often going to get the super synergistic pools. And I'm sorry, but I don't think you're actually often going to play against the synergy pools. I really don't think so. Maybe maybe it's an outlier example, but the other 4-0 deck from my event uh, wasn't a huge synergy pool. I mean, Rob's deck you mentioned was just blue-red good stuff. I, I just think that there's more room for that is all I'm saying. 
So I don't know. Okay, I mean that's fair too. I just I have different anecdotal experience. I guess we can leave it. At that's that. totally fair. Yeah. Treasure's sweet though, huh? Yeah, like contract killing. I think we were, we were talking about it in the in the messenger group. Like, I originally was like, yeah, it's just another gloom lance or just another you know five mana sorcery speed destroy. But like, it is ludicrously good. Like, it, yeah. Even just going like contract killing two drop in the same turn on turn five can just be devastating for your opponent. Like, it's so good. And the fact that there's actually a lot of like reasonably expensive things just allows you to go like contract killing into a seven drop without having to draw another land is just like, it's nuts. The card is incredibly good. Never mind the fact that it's fixing you and synergizes with all the, the artifact treasure matters cards. Yeah, that card's great. It's ramping you. It's which ramp like for me, I would have five man and play play a contract killing and have the avatar that was red 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 three in hand. Yeah. I don't need to draw another land now because it has ramped me to my only six drop, and now I actually don't need to be. And I just also want to quickly touch on explore. You mentioned explore. Love that mechanic. I think it's phenomenal. I think it's underrated, and the reason why is you often get in sealed to a spot where you don't want to draw any more lands. You do want to draw more gas, and if you draw an explore card, the beautiful thing about it is if that top card's a land you don't have to draw it next turn for your one draw of your next turn and if your top card's a card you now can draw it next turn and if it's a card you don't want you can also mill it to your graveyard so just the mechanic of explorer lets you kind of circumvent the this the flood situation a little bit as well as give you that little bit of scry potential if you top your spell and you look at it and it's like a 2-2 two, two for 2 and you're like, nope, I'm behind, I need removal, you get to just put it in your graveyard. I love Explorer. It's fantastic. Yeah, I had I had a few fun experiences trying to explain to some of my opponents that like they were getting frustrated. They're like, oh, my Explorer hit a land again. I'm like, well, you, you just got yourself one card deeper. You Now you don't have to draw that land in your draw step. So you did draw a card. Like, don't don't think about it as, oh, I bricked on my Explorer. It's like, no, I got deeper through my deck on this Explorer. So, yeah, totally with you there. Explorer's a sweet mechanic. Um, allows you to play in a lot of interesting ways and do a lot of things that decks, like like the green decks probably, you feel like you shouldn't have access to some of the things that they do sometimes when you're playing that deck, especially when you go, like, two-drop Explorer into three-drop Explorer, and you're just like, Wow, I'm really far ahead now. <laughs> like it feels pretty good. Um, Vita, you, you talked about how like the city you both talked about the synergy. Uh, GP Providence is coming up this weekend. It's team sealed. Do you expect uh, actually with these archetypes that it might be more obvious what the, oh, yeah. what the combinations it's, are? It's literally. Go- I promise you, at, at GP Providence, there will be someone playing dinosaurs in literally every sealed pool. And if you're not you've either made a giant mistake or you're the one out of a thousand sealed pools that couldn't play dinosaurs. Like, it's it's way too good to ignore. Um, and then there's probably going to be a treasures-based deck, and then there's probably going to be some type of other tribe deck that was good enough, whether it's Merfolk, Vampires, Pirates. I don't know which one it would be. It just depends on what your build is. But dinosaurs is, is too deep and too good to not be a deck in, in every pool. And I think treasures is too broad to not be another type of deck. And then you're just going to have some some third deck that's one of the other lesser tribes. I see not, Doug nodding uh, completely over there. Oh, big time. Yeah, everything I said about, like, I think that we're hyperbolizing the amount that the synergies will matter in six-card sealed deck pools. Six deck, sorry, oh, I can't speak. Six booster pack. Six booster pack sealed deck pools. Um, is I feel like it's going to be an outlier. Once you get to, like, ten plus booster packs, if if you do not have two-drop knight into three-drop dino into dino every game, you won't be winning games. 
like because your opponents are going to have those busted level um draws yes 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 it will profoundly impact um team sealed but once again i don't see it as a huge problem because it lets you do these cool things like oh man i've got my three mana raid deal six damage removal spell is it worth killing the two two for two he just played or do i wait for the dino which means i took that three but i've already got a two three in play so now i can attack like it just it it just the wheels turn in a different way where you have to assume synergy and you have to play according to synergy you know doing math of okay he has this dino in play what if he plays the five five haste dino which now pumps all his other dino stuff right like it just i think it's gonna be a good synergy problem but it is a synergy like everyone will have synergy in in team sealed specifically big time so i guess like the teams that like just don't try to abuse it as much as possible will will not will get owned by those that, that are actively looking for um i'm hoping i i'm, I'm hoping uh i'm going down to gp province so kind kind of hoping for for an easier build <laughs> yeah just just ask your teammates if you can play dinosaurs and you'll have the most fun i promise it's it's so fun um doug uh, just just to wrap this up a, a little uh if you're drafting, if you're planning to jump in the draft, uh, Vince already mentioned you would jump in and red white dinosaurs. Uh, what did what did you think? Did you see yeah, what, what you would jump into? What we talked about today, we have uh, some local Albertans, the uh, old crew that Brian Sue ran in before uh, ditching it. But uh, they they have a trophy race every season where they just compete so you can get the most Magic Online trophies for draft. Um, so the trophy race started today, and we had a big talk before the trophy race started. What do you want to draft and? What my advice to everyone was, was red aggressive. That's the default advice. I don't really care what you pair it with. I think the best one to pair it with is black. I know a really, really good friend of mine who's like just way better magic than me told me to pair it with blue. And Vince is better limited than me, and he just said to pair it with white. So I think if, if anything can be deduced from those three people's opinion is go with red and go with the aggressive cards. And, and I mean, like, take the two drop, two, two fire breather over the three, three dino that gets bigger if you have dinos. Like, try that to start. Maybe you'll lose games to certain things and you can adapt, but to start in close situations, go with the cheaper, more aggressive card. The three, three pirate for three is just nuts when you're in these aggressive decks if, if you have enough pirates, because it's just a three, three menace for three. And you're not blocking anyways, you're attacking always. Um, also, underrated card or overrated card. I don't know how people evaluate it, but the card that's been overperforming for a lot of uh, our, this this group is the plus three plus zero oh first strike. Um, is it called Sure Strike? I want to say. Yep. Something like that. But it's a red combat trick, and I'm just hearing stories and seeing screenshots of three for ones all day long. Um, the cards, when their synergies are enabled, are so powerful that you have to now double block menace creatures, or you have to really prioritize blocking the only dino and trying to play through a green pump spell and then sure strike just utterly decimates people um and and a lot of the good removal like not all of it but a lot of it is is sorcery or expensive so like the green or the blue bounce spell is three mana and the red removal spell is sorcery there's lightning strike which is an uncommon but the black ones that are really good are mostly sorcery so these type of things make sure strike so much better. In formats like the last one with unsummon, cards like that go down. In formats like this, where contract killing is premium and the raid deal three is premium, um, 
then combat tricks like that go up. So that's kind of where I would start. Red aggressive. Don't overload on combat tricks, but have some sure strikes if you can. Like they're first strike, man. First strike is awesome. Obviously, we've identified that. That's why we named our podcast First Strike. <laughs> um, well, this has actually been a long show. Um, we had a lot of lots of stories, lots of meat in the uh, Ixlon policy changes. Uh, any final words on, on limited Ixlon limited, Doug? My final word of advice is I just wanted Opt to be the best card ever because uh, my first GP top eight was with Opt and Query on Dryad, and uh, now Opt and Query on Dryad exist again in Standard. And stay tuned for me to explain my Opt opinions. But um, it, I, opting those type of cards are not what I want to be doing in this format. I just want to be playing creatures. So that's <laughs> that's, uh, that's where I'm at. All right, Vince, to wrap up. Just play it. Let us know. Like, help us out in the nation. You know, like th- we had we had such a good experience with the last set, kind of pooling our data and talking about what was good. And you know, everyone was posting deck lists, and we were talking about what worked and what didn't. And I mean, I would like to say, hopefully, it it contributed to Doug top eighting that GP, right? And that's really cool. And hopefully, we can keep doing that for people, right? So get to drafting. There's the the excel spreadsheet that i made in the file or in the in the google drive is still completely functional for ixalan you can just replace hou with ixa and it's going to do the exact same thing um yeah like it's it's always fun to aggregate data so let's uh let's be doing it and also join the nation if you want to know more about how to draft ixalan because <laughs> we be discovering it um any, any, actually, any last words that we wrap the show up? Any extra little thing you guys want to add? I think we We're lost good? Doug, so I think I'm good. <laughs> All right. We got, we got Doug just staring at us. Um, <laughs> probably Facebook messaging us. Okay. <laughs> pa-ding, pa-ding. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to our first strike producers, including Jonathan Good, Kaus Merchick, uh, Derek Pite, Matthew Kelly, Adrian Merchinson, and Isaiah Carrero. Super, super awesome. And uh, can't wait to keep bringing you guys awesome Ixalan content. And as Vince said, definitely join the nation, uh, patreon.com slash first strike. And uh, we can hopefully break the Ixalan draft format. Hopefully I'll, I'll do well in Providence. So uh, for just Vince on the screen and uh, me, we will see you next episode. Oh, thanks, <laughs> nope. Take care. Thanks, we'll see you next time. Oh,